everyone, and welcome to Parasensory Remix Episode 1. So, I've been thinking about doing this for a long time, and the reason being is because I think um, the first two episodes... I know the first episode uh, of this series was done completely on my phone. Um, Even though I had all this recording equipment and I do music production on the side, uh, for some reason, I, you know, I had just been wanting to start a podcast for so long and I found out about Anchor and, you know, it looked like you could do everything on your phone. So I was just in my living room and I said, you know what, I'm tired of wasting time. I'm going to start the podcast and I'm going to start it right this second. And so I just started recording on my phone and thus the, the first episode of Parasensory was born. Um... So, you know, yeah, that's cool and everything, and it got it started, and it, it you know, kind of made this snowball effect into what Parasensory is now, and I'm very grateful for it. But I have had a lot of people come to me who have checked out the series, um, and I mean, I can, I can tell right away, uh, you know, they'll say, well, listen to the first couple of episodes, and yeah, it was cool. And for me personally, which I am my own worst critic, for me personally, I take that as, uh, oh, uh, you thought it sucked, and rightfully so, because I did it completely on my phone. And so I've just been having to always tell people, like, you know, listen to, like, some, like, the the fourth, fifth, or sixth episode, or, like, even further down, because the production just gets better. And it just got to where I was tired of doing that, so... uh, so now I'm remixing the uh, first episode. Um, it's not really a remix. Um, you know, I'm completely redoing it. Um, you know, it's, a, it's written out, um, it's performed, it's produced. Um, and, and I really like the way it's turned out. And I think you will really enjoy it. And I think it just is uh, kind of a testament of the evolution that Parasensory has taken from the first episode. Uh, so... This one is, of course, uh, it's one of my favorite stories. I mean, my God, I read these reports and these stories as a child, and they've always stuck with me. And um, I, oh my God, I just love it so much. Um, I love the, um, the concepts uh, that are kind of um, talked about in these stories. Um, the almost lack of um, explanation. Um, just the, just the entire. Uh, enigmatic demeanor of these stories. Um, I don't even know if any of that makes sense. I don't even know if those are descriptive words, but th- these stories are just crazy to me. Um, so, anyway, without further ado, here is the story about the Kurdacha and the Killing Bone. Killing Bone. Killing Bone.
The scene is an overhead bird's eye view of Australia's Northern Territory. Here in the Northeast sector, the land is a vast tropical savanna as opposed to its central and southern desert counterparts, and is known by the native Aborigines as Arnhem Land. Down below we see a man running. Running like his life depends on it. Like something is chasing him. Or hunting him. Yet there is nothing that can be seen for miles around him. Eventually the man is found face down in the dirt and is transported to a hospital in Darwin. The man is visibly suffering a great deal, yet no wounds or injuries are seen anywhere on his body. Once at the hospital, doctors scrambled to figure out why the man is in such great pain. Many tests are performed and the results conclude that there is no disease, virus, or even poison that is causing this man to suffer. Yet the man is visibly in a great deal of pain and is becoming weaker by the second. Without any apparent cause, the man truly seems to be dying. It was later found out that this man was an Aborigine and a member of the Mali tribe. It was also revealed that he had committed incest, which was strictly against tribal law. He had been summoned to stand before the tribal council for the sentencing of his crime, but the man decided instead to flee. Because this is another violation of the tribal law, the council sentenced him to death. But how do you punish a man by death if he has run away? According to the Mali tribe, you send the Kardecha, the tribe's ritual assassins. The Kardecha are sent to find condemned men. They operate in usually twos or threes and will pursue the condemned man relentlessly, even if it takes years. The Kardecha take their name from the slippers they wear, which are crafted from cockatoo feathers and human hair. They barely leave behind a footprint. The Kardecha usually wear masks made of emu feathers and cover themselves with kangaroo hair after coating their bodies in human blood. Wait a second. What? Holy shit, that sounds fucking terrifying. Could you imagine one of those guys running up on you, covered in fucking human blood and kangaroo hair, wearing a fucking mask of, what was it, emu feathers? Or Holy shit, man. Could you imagine if it were today, though, and you were running from one of those guys, and, and like you just decided to hop on a plane and just get the fuck out of there. Could you imagine him like going to the airport, you know, being like, I need airplane ticket. Uh, excuse me? Are, are you naked? I need the airplane ticket now. Uh, you need security and TSA on your ass. That's what you need. Please, I need airplane ticket now. Is that, is that blood? Is that fucking blood that you're covered in? Yeah, uh. Security, security. You are needed at the front. 
there is a man covered in blood in here. Security. As the Kurdacha pursues their prey, they equip themselves with only one weapon, a fashioned bone, usually sharp at one end and blunt at the other. The bone is called the kundela. kundela. It's also known as the killing bone. It's usually made from the bone of a human, kangaroo, or an emu. Some kundelas are fashioned from wood. They're not very long, some vary six to nine inches in length. They usually have a braid of hair that is attached through a hole or stuck to it with the resin from a spinifex bush. For the kundela to work, a ritual must be performed perfectly without fault. The ritual is performed in order to load the bone with psychic energy. The tribal executioner, the malungua, is the one that charges the bone. The loaded bone is then handed off to the Kurdacha. From there, they start their journey to hunt and kill the condemned man. Now, it may be hard for one to believe that only a small bone could be used to kill someone. So how exactly does the killing bone work? It is said that when the Kurdacha find the condemned man, they approach no more than a dozen feet or so. The assassin then drops to one knee, and with the killing bone clenched in his fist pointing out between his fingers, he thrust it forward towards the condemned man. The assassin then utters a brief chant while his victim is frozen in fear. Neither the assassin nor the killing bone ever touches the condemned man. Once the chant is over, the Kurdacha relaxes his arm, stands to his feet, and he and his fellow assassins begin their journey back to the tribe, leaving their quarry to die. The condemned man has now been pointed and is doomed for death. He may live for several days or even weeks, but eventually he will succumb to the Kundela's fatal power and he will die. This is the power that lives in the condemned man's mind, the power that he chooses to believe. All tribal members and family members alike will have certainly heard that the man has been pointed, and if they come in contact with him, they will treat him as if he were already dead. Back in the hospital in Darwin, it was revealed to us that our man who is seemingly dying for no reason and without any cause has committed a great crime against his tribe. He then chose to run from his punishment. Because of this decision, the tribe sentenced him to death by way of the kundela, the killing bone. We now realize that he must have been hunted, found, and pointed by the Kurdacha. He is condemned. He is doomed. The man spends four days in the hospital, writhing in pain. But before the fifth day is over, the man dies, a victim of the Kundela's fatal power. Or was he a victim of fatal psychological conditioning, a victim of his own belief 
There are, of course, scientific, psychological, and physiological explanations for this type of death. In a nutshell, it has to do with the effects of fear and anxiety and what happens to a person's body when they experience a tremendous amount of both. For a brief time, adrenaline spikes, reducing blood supply to the less vital parts of the body so that the blood can be redirected to the muscles. The muscles are what become vital in a moment of fight or flight. But since there is a reduction of blood supply, that means the supply of oxygen is also reduced. Eventually, blood vessels become more permeable to blood plasma, which seats into the tissues surrounding the blood vessels. This creates an overall reduction in the volume of circulating blood. This also reduces the blood pressure and thus begins a fatal cycle. The reduced blood pressure adversely affects the parts of the body that are responsible for maintaining the circulation of blood. Therefore, the reduced circulation of blood further reduces the blood pressure, and this cycle, if left unchecked, only ends in death. But even considering these factors, there have been cases of death by pointing in which medical examination revealed no evidence of reduced blood pressure. One example is of the man we mentioned at the beginning of our story, the condemned man who died on the fifth day of his stay in the hospital. Another example is of another Aborigine man who told the doctor he was going to die soon because a curse had been put on him. The doctor ran many tests on the man and eventually concluded that he had no medical problems. But only days later, the man was dead. Do these curses have any merit? Do they truly contain the power to kill? Or could these deaths simply be a result of one's belief, a belief so strong that it subconsciously becomes the curse itself, physiologically affecting the body so greatly it causes the body to shut down? Is the power of a curse and the power of the mind exclusive? Let's examine a couple of other cases. There's an interesting case found in the journal of the Italian missionary Father Jerome Marola de Sorrento about a man who met an untimely fate due to his superstitious fear. This story takes place in the late 17th century in the Congo. During the long journey, a young man decided to stay the night at a friend's house. In the morning, the friend decided to catch a wild hen and prepare it for breakfast. The young man who was on the journey staying with him was a member of a tribe that believed wild hen was a forbidden food and should never be eaten. At breakfast, the young man even asked his friend if the dish he had prepared for breakfast was wild hen. His friend assured him that it was not, and so the young man ate his meal before setting out on the rest of his journey. Years later, the two men met again, and the man asked his former guest if he would like to share a meal of wild hen. The young man told him that would be impossible, for it is forbidden for him and his people to consume wild hen. The friend laughed and asked why he would refuse to eat wild hen now when he was more than happy to eat it years ago. Once the young man realized the truth, 
that he had eaten forbidden food all those years ago, he began to tremble and shake violently. Within 24 hours, the young man was dead. Let's look at another case. This next incident occurred in Australia in 1919 and was later reported by a Dr. Lambert during his association with the International Health Division of the Rockefeller Foundation. There was a mission at Mona Mona in North Queensland where many native converts were gathered. But outside the mission was a group of non-converts, including a man named Nebo. Nebo was a famous witch doctor. One of the main helpers of the mission was a man named Rob, and when Dr. Lambert arrived at the mission, he learned that Rob was in great distress and his people wanted him to have a medical examination. Dr. Lambert ran a number of tests on Rob and found that he had no fever, no pain, and no signs of symptoms or disease. Yet, according to Dr. Lambert, it seemed that Rob had come down with a serious illness. Dr. Lambert learned from the missionary that Rob had been pointed by Nebo and was convinced that he was doomed to die because of this. Dr. Lambert and the rest of the missionary then went on to hunt for Nebo, the witch doctor. Once Nebo was found, Dr. Lambert and the missionary threatened to cut off Nebo's food supply and any other resources he had been enjoying for the past few months if he didn't reverse the curse on Rob. Nebo then agreed to go see Rob. The witch doctor leaned over Rob's bed and told the suffering man that it was all a mistake, that it was a joke, that he did not point the bone at him at all. Dr. Lambert then reports that the relief in Rob's face as well as in the rest of his body was instantaneous. Not even a few hours later, Rob was back to work at the missionary. He had a happy attitude and was in full possession of his physical strength. So it seems with these two cases that the fatal power of our superstitious beliefs can strike at any time or can be reversed as long as the antidote matches our conditioning and superstitious ways of thinking. Surely there must be a way to decondition the mind, to stand fearless in the face of the Kurdacha while he points at you, rendering his magic ineffective simply because you no longer believe. But we still question if the magic is truly real. And is that one speck of doubt the energy that gives the magic its power. To find out, it seems you risk paying with your life. And if that's not a risk you're willing to take, you might as well run, like the man in our next and last case. A full-blooded Aborigine man of the Arunta tribe named Alan Webb had shot a fellow tribesman over the struggle for a rifle. Um, I hate to keep interrupting this broadcast, but I just wanted to point out real quick here that this report says this is a full-blooded Aborigine man named Alan Webb. Eh, full-blooded Aborigine named Alan Webb. Maybe there's some some white man, white culture influence there. Um, you know, I'm just going out on a limb here. But anyway, 
sorry. Let's get back to it. In April of 1969, Webb was found not guilty of manslaughter. The court ruled that he was acting in self-defense and the rifle accidentally went off during the struggle. But to the Arunta tribe, the white man's court had no relevance. Once Webb returned to his tribe, he was summoned to stand before the tribal council and be dealt his verdict. Because Webb killed a fellow tribesman, he knew that the tribal council would sentence him to death. Webb and his family quickly left the tribe, and because of this, the tribal council had him condemned by execution. Therefore, the Malungua, the ritual executioner, began the charging of the Kundela ceremony. The ritual was performed, the killing bone was loaded, and was then given to the Kurdacha, who promptly set out to hunt down Webb. 1976 was the last time anyone heard from Alan Webb. He had managed to evade the Kurdacha for seven years. He worked odd jobs and was constantly on the move, living in a van with his wife, two kids, and three dogs. Anywhere he stopped, he kept an ear out for any word about the assassins coming his way. He slept sparsely, with a rifle at his side, and relied on his dogs barking to wake him if the Kurdacha ever approached. There is no record of anyone surviving this long while being pursued by the Kurdacha without an antidote of the white man's medicine. But Webb knew, and possibly still knows, that the Kurdacha will not stop. Their hunt will not cease. They will never abandon their pursuit until they find him. He knows that if he's cornered and the Kurdacha point him, they will leave him to suffer and die without any trace of injury. It will be death by nothing more significant than a superstitious belief. Thank you so much for tuning in to uh, Remix Episode 1 here on, on Parasensory. Um, one thing I want to mention real quick, just concerning these stories and the concepts and uh, the fact that, you know, a belief could possibly kill us and be fatal. And, um, you know, I think it gives us the opportunity to reflect on ourselves introspectively and, and kind of think, um, you know, is there something in your life um, that serves as a killing bone to you, something that um, is hindering you because of a belief or a superstition. Um, you know, is there some kind of character defect that needs to be worked on and worked through in order to reach that ne that next level or to achieve something uh, in your life? Um, you know, just food for thought there. Um, so as always, you can follow me on Instagram parasensory.podcast um, you can if you, if, you, if you like the show if you like this stuff, if you want me to keep going um, I, I invite you to support me um, you can go to anchor.fm 
You can search for Parasensory and there you will find a place where you can support me. You can become a subscriber for one, um, but you can also donate every month as little as 99 cents a month. It's less than a cup of coffee. Um, and, and you can cancel any time if you pay me a dollar uh, one month and then you decide, you know what, screw this guy, I don't, I don't want to support him anymore. You can, you can cancel anytime. It's as simple as that. Um, but just listening uh, gives me support as well. And I, I appreciate that more than anything. I truly do. Thank you so much for listening. And um, please keep at it. So until next time. Keep your frequencies tuned to the strange. And remember that there is more to this world than what we see.